if you want to be a successful business person, people do need to know about you. They need to, you know, hear about like, all right, well, what does he do or what does she do in some basic way? There are a lot of ways you can do it. And so we can't opt out of, of the, uh, you know, the baseline, but we can opt out of certain methods of doing it. Welcome to the LeaderCast podcast, a weekly deep dive into the stories that transformed our guests into leaders worth following. I'm your host, Joe Boyd. If you've been enjoying the podcast, thank you so much for being a listener. One simple thing you can do to help us out is give a review wherever you listen. Today's guest is Dory Clark. She is best known as being the author of the best-selling book called The Long Game. She graduated college at the age of 18. What were you doing when you were 18? I was barely graduating high school. You're going to love this whole conversation. She's amazing. I love her energy. And oh yeah, one more thing. She's writing a musical. You're going to want to know what that's about too. Dory Clark, welcome to the LeaderCast podcast. We're super happy to have you. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Just, I'm, I was reading your bio and getting to know you a little bit. Uh, I'm super excited just to talk to you um, about lots of things. Uh, but before we like dive back in and you know we'll, we'll get really deep and find out what a kind of, kind of kid you were and how that influenced you, um, what do, <laughs> what are you mainly up to now? We know you're an author and, and other things, but uh, if you meet someone in a bar or an elevator, what do you tell them you do these days? Oh, well, you know, I, I guess, I guess it depends, uh, whether I want to scare them off or not. If I, <laughs> if I do, I'm just like, I do consulting, you know, that, that, yeah. that gets them, gets yeah. them gone. But, uh, generally I tell people I write and I, I write business and career books and speak and consult about that. Uh, I also do a lot of work these days too in writing musicals, which is something that I have, uh, started seven years ago and uh, have as kind of a serious sideline that I pursue. That's fun and awesome. And I could spend the whole podcast talking about that, but then people would say, is this, is this a musical podcast? But maybe we'll get to it in a second. Um, I, by the way, just side note, I'm a complete Hamilton nerd and just, uh, so we could talk about that forever. Um, yeah. How can you not be such good stuff? I just, uh, I can't, we'll we'll go on. I'm sorry. I'm making myself speechless on my own podcast. Um, let's go, uh, let's learn a little bit about yourself. I know at least, uh, your childhood sounds, uh, not typical, as I read through it. So could you sort of explain what kind of kid were you? What were you into? What excited you early on? Uh, and I'd love to hear, it looks like you graduated high school pretty early. So I'd like, kind of love to hear how all that came about. Yeah, I did. I did graduate. Uh, well, actually it's, I technically, I never graduated high school. So, yeah. uh, in a, in a literal sense, I think I'm, uh, t- I would technically be a high school dropout, <laughs> but more accurate is just, I stopped going and didn't go back. Um, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina and it was not really my place. I didn't really feel like I fit in very well and I wanted to get out as soon as I could. And so I was researching a million different possibilities, but the one that seemed the most appealing to me was just to expedite things. And so there was a program at Mary Baldwin College now, Mary Baldwin University in Virginia, which is a accelerated program basically for high school girls to enter college early. And so I thought that sounded like a splendid idea (laughs) and I managed to get in. So I started college when I was 14 and then just uh, proceeded apace and uh, ended up graduating. I did two years at Mary Baldwin and then I transferred to Smith College in Massachusetts and finished that in uh, 
you know, when I was 18. This, uh, I'm going to date myself, maybe not you, but uh, there's like Doogie Hauser vibes, right? If you remember uh, Doogie. Uh, I was, do, uh, <laughs> I do. So he's Do- 13 and he's, awesome. he's in medical school with all the 24-year-olds. Um, was that a reality? Like were there times where you were like a 14, 15 and you're surrounded by older folks at school? To, I mean, to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, at Mary Baldwin, there yeah. was a cohort of people. So it wasn't just me. There were yeah. probably about 50 people who were in that situation. And, you know, it was a reasonably small campus. So mm-hmm. it's not like 50 people was, you know, by any stretch a majority, yeah. but there was enough of a cohort. So it didn't feel like you were the only one. Yeah. Um, also, I had the advantage that you know, I, I looked, I looked old enough. Like I could have, I yeah. could have fit in. So it wasn't quite so obvious that I was yeah. younger. Um, so that, that helps. And are you, uh, looking back on it really, uh, happy about that path you took? Is there any like regret that you didn't do kind of normal high school kind of stuff or anything like that? You know, the truth show is that high school is terrible. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe not for everyone, but I'm going to say for actually a lot of people, it's pretty terrible. Yeah. So, so no, I don't think I missed anything. I think I, you know, at the time it was so funny because, you know, you'd always get these, these very concerned questions from yeah. parents, yeah. especially. And they'd be like, aren't you sad? You're missing your prom. <laughs> they seem to fixate on that. I'm like, really? Is that the best you can do? Yeah. I mean, if that's if that's the highlight, I really don't know. So, I mean, to me, the idea of actually getting to go to college and like start living that was, was so much better. I love that. So, yeah, I I, I feel a hundred and ten percent happy that I did that. I did. I did this two day life plan, which was phenomenal. It was like eight years ago, and and the whole first day is supposed to be about your past. The second day is about your future. And we talked about my eighth grade year for three hours. And finally, I was like, shouldn't we move on? And he was like, nope. <laughs> what <laughs> happened like, in eighth grade, man? It was man? awful. Was it was terrible. On? I moved to a new school. I had no friends. I was depressed. And like, just it, it for he, what he showed me is my, I've since had such a longing to connect outcasts and people that don't have, you know, kind of a family or a place. I've spent my whole life sort of building these little communities sort of accidentally. And he's was sort of, he knew what he was doing. He was sort of showing me that's just who, that's, that's who you are, but it comes out of this, this pain. So that, yes, middle school, high school can be awful. Um, yeah. And so, well, you know, you raise, I think a really interesting point. There's a guy that I know who is writing a book and I'm very eager to read his book when it's done. His name is David Holmans. And David was kind of get you know not 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 to steal his thunder prematurely here, but I'm just like advertising yeah. like read yeah. David Holman's book when it comes out. He's writing a book with a co-author about con- connectors and like mm. sort of the nature of what it means to be a connector and what you know what is it that prompts people to sort of step into that role and to want to do that because yeah. you know a lot of a lot of people don't right it's sort of the the anomalous uh, person that really gets into it. And what he told me when I saw him earlier this year uh, that his research had uncovered, they interviewed like 50 people. And he said out of these interviews, like basically 49 out of the 50, they their, connected, their desire to be a connector was motivated by some kind of psychological wound that they were right. essentially trying to salve and pay forward by uh, helping other people, which I thought was uh, was you know, kind of a wonderful way of doing it, yeah. um, but really interesting and perhaps apt. Well, there you go. I should get that book. It always felt weird for me because I'm an introvert as well. And my whole life I've been on stage basically, right? 
yeah, um, but yeah. and and connecting people. So it's it's fascinating uh, to think about how those early moments shape us for sure. Uh, I'm also like I'm a big story theory guy, and I don't know how familiar you are with like Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey and all that kind of stuff. But your story definitely starts off like any great story would, which is you're in a you're in your ordinary world and a longing to get out. So apart from pursuing education, was there a specific longing that you imagined? You're sitting in New York City now. Was that part of it when you're sitting in your small town? I'm going to be in New York someday. Uh, you know, what, what were those early sort of, I guess, career ambitions or adventures you wanted to go on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, did, it didn't have to be New York, mm-hmm. although, you know, New York, New York could have been it. I remember like literally almost anything seemed more exciting mm-hmm. <laughs> than yeah. where I was in this little in this little town. Um, so, yeah, I used to watch L.A. Law a lot. I thought that seemed very glamorous. <laughs> Uh, you know, being a lawyer in Los Angeles, my God. <laughs> it's, it's exactly uh, like that. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, possibly the reality yeah. is not quite so sexy, but I, I thought that was, that was really fantastic. And yeah, I mean, all the, all the different, um, you know, cities and opportunity. I was a big, I was a big spy fan, a big James Bond fan. So yeah. all the international intrigue was really great, but yeah, I just, um, uh, I felt a keen desire to be somewhere else, be in a place where things were happening, be in a place where I could kind of find my people, all of that. So as we get back into your story, when, when does that start to happen? When do you sort of get an inkling of these might be my people or start to feel that you're on the right adventure to use that idea? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I mean, there was a very large immediate payoff, as a matter of fact, when I went to college, because literally when I was a prospective student, you know, when I came up for the sort of initial overnight visit to like check out the place, I I met this uh, girl who became my first girlfriend and we completely hit it off. Yeah. And there was like no internet then. So in between February, when I came up for the visit and August, when I started for orientation, we wrote each other these long letters <laughs> and it was, you know, very exciting. And I get to campus and immediately we start dating and also immediately I developed this like fantastic group of friends that are kind of, you know, connected to her. And so it just immediately felt like, mm. oh, that's that's incredible. All I needed was just to sort of change my locale and I can I can find people. And so it was really, you know, wonderful, wondrous. Yeah. And that lasted probably for about a, a little over a semester and then uh and then we broke up. And then I, all the friends kind of went with her. And so then it was like super depressing and lonely again. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, was that part, uh, well, like was your, uh, being part of the LGBTQ community, was that also part of the desire to get out of your town? Do you feel like that was that all kind of connected for you not feeling at home? Yeah, or? I would, I would say it was, I mean, you know, this is, this is the old timey days yeah, right, right. where, uh, you know, people, people weren't on. TikTok and things yeah. like that. So, so I did not, I did not know any gay people. I had yeah. never met any gay people. So, uh, you really did have to find, uh, you know, like, like be geographically proactive in finding a community yeah. for sure. Yeah. Interesting. So it sounds like a lot of sort of, uh, there's some pain in college with the breakup, but a lot of 
shaping you and some healing starts to happen, maybe some, and that call to adventure. So getting out of, getting out of college then when you, when it came time to figure out, we all get to the point where we got to make some money, I guess, like what, what, what were you thinking in terms of career and career path? what did you want to do and, and where did that take you? Well, really what I, what I wanted to do, I mean, I, I was such a fan of the college experience. I loved it so much. I thought it was so interesting, both, you know, just the classes and the learning and the environment, like, you know, the fancy buildings. I loved literally everything about it. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I was like, well, that's easy. I want to be a professor. And um, I was not, I was a little bit aware of kind of market forces, but not, um, not really or not enough. I just figured, well, like, oh, it's going to be, you know, challenging to get a job as like a professor in the humanities. But, you know, I will just be the best and therefore, you know, the best will always do well. So uh, that was kind of the thinking. But as it happens, I was spared, you could say, from that fate because I had I had gone to graduate school. I'd gotten a master's degree in theology and then I wanted to go get my doctorate. And the original plan was I would get a doctorate in English literature, but kind of have a little bit of overlapping emphasis with religion mm-hmm. and uh, like religion and literature kind of thing. And anyway, no one wanted me. I applied <laughs> to uh, to three places and I got turned down by all of them. So I had to come up with a totally different plan. I had assumed I would get into at least one of them and I did not. Mm. So that yeah the first the first iteration of my career goal was uh was sort of a wash and i had to start over the first kind of big uh we talk about dragons that stand in our way going back to the joseph campbell stuff that those first uh perceived failures uh really tend to shape us as well um and i I think i I told you this right before we talked i also have a theology degree so you can see where people end up when they get that just doing something else is it's kind of like kind of like an art degree a little bit right that's right yeah. so so did you did you get it like right after college or, mine, or did you go back and get it later mine was bachelor's so it was uh, like a bible college uh so mm-hmm. that and then uh yeah I, in my denomination you went straight from that to leading a church which is was my early career so that's what i did and uh for various reasons i don't do that anymore either but it was a great experience um i think a lot of folks are drawn to that uh, you know, as, as kids want to be world changers and want to know what the world's all about. And there's, there's a, there's a draw to studying that for sure. I get it. Yeah. Um, and then there's very limited jobs once you get out, unless you want to work at a church. Um, okay. So, uh, so when that didn't work out, uh, tell us a little bit about where you went next. What happened? Developing world-class leaders in your community is now easier than ever with LeaderCast. In addition to our flagship May event, becoming a presenting partner allows you to stream multiple events per year, each with an opportunity to earn money. The new LeaderCast lets you invite 1 to 1,000 people with unlimited streaming opportunities. Check out more at LeaderCast.com or the link in our bio. Yeah, so I I had to kind of think quick essentially because I you know, this was like the spring uh and I had planned that okay, I'm going to have this thing I'm going to do in the fall and um I'm probably going to have to move for it like, you know, it, yeah. I I had sort of geared up for this reality which was not happening. 
So I needed, I needed to figure something else out. So I actually feel like I did a reasonably good job of moving fast. Um, I had to suddenly kind of do an inventory and say, okay, well, if academia is not going to be it, what is similar enough to academia that I could be happy with it? Yeah. You know, so it's like, all right, what, what else involves reading and writing and ideas and talking to people? And, <laughs> and so I came up with, uh, with journalism and politics. So I, I signed myself up for two internships. One was to be an intern for a state rep um, in, my, in my city. And the other was, so that was what I did for the fall semester, what would mm -hmm. have been the fall semester. And then for spring semester, I did an internship at a, uh, at a magazine and as a, as a reporter and, you know, I mean, they're small, like intern kind of things, but you know, you hang around, you meet people, you do stuff. Yeah. And eventually I was able to parlay that, you know, as a, as a journalist, you get so-called clips, which is like your little thing that you wrote that you get to show people. Yeah, yeah. And so I got some clips nice. and I was able to, uh, to get a job at the local alternative weekly newspaper. Uh, so that, that became my first real ongoing job. And, uh, you're in the process of becoming a better and better writer as you do that, I would assume. Um, yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, maybe I'm jumping way ahead, but, uh, was the long game, was that your first book or, uh, the first one that sort of took off. What's the story with that? I, it sounds fascinating. And I already ordered it by the way. So, Oh, thank you very yeah. much. The long game actually, you know, in, in a sort of meta move, uh, no, it was not nearly the first okay. one. It was my fourth book. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, my, my very first book that I wrote came out in 2013. That was called reinventing you. Okay. And, um, yeah, I, uh, the long game, the, the subtitle, which hopefully kind of sums it up is how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. Yeah. And it basically talks about how, how we have to be strategically patient because things take a lot longer generally than we want them to. Sometimes some of those things include finding a career path. Yep. Some of those things include getting a best-selling book uh, because the <laughs> long game, I feel very happy uh, made it to the wall street journal bestseller list. But uh, that was not that was not the first book out of the gate. Uh, it took four to be able to uh, to build up enough knowledge and momentum to be able to crack that. That's just the universe messing with you, right? That waits. It, once she writes a book about uh, patience, then all, all will be unleashed. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> the universe loves irony. <laughs> um. Well, I'm I'm curious. Those, so obviously, those first three books were uh, things trying to get out of you. Uh, when you when you look back at those, uh, what what was in you that you wanted to get out of those books? And I'm sure they resonated with with many people, even though, though they weren't bestsellers. Yeah, and I mean, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with the process, too, the the sort of um, term bestseller is it's it's a really specific thing yeah. you know people often assume it just means like well it sold well right uh and that is true but th that that is not a sort of full definition um it's not about how many copies you sell over the life of the book uh it is how many copies you sell literally in a one week period and whether that is enough to mount you at the top of a list which of course depends on what else is released that yeah. week or right. how it compares to other things so even if a book is really good and even if it's actually objectively quite successful over time, it still may not be a bestseller. So it's, uh, it's an interesting nuance there. But, you know, broadly speaking, what I, 
you know, the first book about professional reinvention was something that I was able to write based on an article that I had written for the Harvard Business Review that had kind of taken off. Mm -hmm. And in fact, interestingly, it was inspired uh, in part by a lot of the early flailing that I had in my career. So, you know, often you're able to sort of take the, take the lemons and make lemonade. (laughs) And so for me, all the struggle of like finding, finding a job and getting, getting laid off and like all these things, um, inspired me to look into professional reinvention as a topic. And that Mm -hmm. turned into something, you know, cool. Uh, my next two books were basically about problems that I personally wanted to solve. And so writing a book gave me a really good excuse to research them and attempt to solve them. Yeah. Uh, the first problem was about how to attempt to become a recognized expert in your field. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote my book stand out based on that. And my, in my, you know, next book after that was trying to solve the problem of, okay, great. If you are recognized for your expertise, how do you actually make money from that? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a book about monetization called Entrepreneurial You. Got you. Love that. And that, um, we'll talk about that a little bit. Let's, let's, uh, you know, one of the things I think we live in a world now where almost everyone at least has the opportunity to sort of think of themselves. You hate to say it as your own product or brand. Um, and, uh, having, you know, worked through all that stuff with your books. Um, how do you think about uh, my first question is honestly about the health of thinking that way. Like, how do you, cause I, I have to do it some myself and you do obviously, you know, what, what, what do you find just emotionally? What are the guardrails to help someone kind of figure out how to make it through life? Realizing part of what I'm selling is my name is me. It's my thoughts. You know, does that make sense? what I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's true like a lot of things, right? I mean, it's very important for us to have a level of self-knowledge about what is triggering and what's not, um, you know, what's a big deal and what's not. I mean, if you're somebody that has problems with overeating, you know, if somebody next to you is eating potato chips, that is going to just like freak you out. Like you can't even concentrate because it's like, Oh my God, the chips, right? Like somebody (laughs) told me a story the other day about how, um, this, you know, they, they thought that somehow a person didn't like them. And the reason they thought the person didn't like them is that the person was sitting next to them and like moved across the room, which I mean, okay, that's, you know, perhaps not an unreasonable conclusion, but it was actually because that per, you know, like, this is a good life lesson, right? It's like the person saw that they were eating chips, thought the chips were too triggering and moved across uh, the room because yeah. of that. Yeah. So you never know what's going on. Right. So all this is to say social media is a real trigger for some people. I have, I have clients who have gone off social media because they just really found it too upsetting. Mm. It is, it is not upsetting for me personally. Um, but it is for some people. And that's, that's a valid thing. It's just important to sort yeah. of know, like, what's the thing that gets you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have to, I, I think, you know, the basic idea here is we can't opt out of, you know, some basic things, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to be a successful business person, people do need to know about you. Yeah. They need to, you know, hear about like, all right, well, what does he do? Or what does she do in some basic way? That's the basic but there are a lot of ways you can do it. Mm-hmm. And so we can't opt out of, of the, uh, you know, the baseline, but we can opt out of certain methods of doing it. 
And just having the the judgment to recognize that just because everyone else, quote unquote, is doing a certain thing doesn't mean you have to do it. We need to find our own way that is, um, you know, something that we can still feel comfortable and feel like we have integrity in doing. I love that. And I, I would be curious. What's interesting with uh, you seem like you're such a diverse person who's had a lot of experiences and a lot of interests. Um, so I would wonder if it was hard for you to kind of narrow down what your expertise what you wanted it to be or what it should be uh, for folks that may be at a place in their career, listening to this there, they have, you know, we're all leaders. So we all have some sort of influence and maybe influence is starting to grow outside of our own company and people, you know, if you're at that point where you really probably need to actually cognitively decide, (laughs) this is what I want to be known for. Do you have some like life hacks or hints to kind of start that process when you realize, you know, maybe it's time to do that? Yeah, for sure, Joe. I mean, um, there, I, I like to think of it as there's a couple of kinds of people, right? I mean, there's there's the one group of people that it's just so clear what yeah. their expertise is, and they're just like, yes, I do, blah blah blah, right. and you know, they're all in on it. Mm-hmm. It's it's not even a question, and that's great. We're all jealous of those. people. I'm insanely <laughs> jealous. That's what I was going to say. I'm so jealous of those people. Yeah, I simple, hate that I'm kind of good at lots of things. That's so frustrating. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So you're exactly right. So I mean, for for you know this other group, which I would count myself yeah. in, and perhaps you too. Yeah. It's it's a lot harder because you know you like a lot of things. You're you're decent at a lot of things. Like you know you can take it in a lot of directions, and so it can become vexingly hard because you understand that life would be easier if you were to specialize or to somehow make a choice, mm-hmm. but you kind of don't want to, and also there's a lot of pressure in choosing that. Like you don't want to choose wrong or whatever. And so what I did, and I mean, it is true. You could just sort of make an arbitrary choice and go with it. Yeah. But what I did, which felt right for me, and I will share it in the hopes that it might be useful for other people, is literally I just let the market decide because I realized I had no perspective. I did not have good enough judgment to understand what people were interested in. And I think that most people don't have good enough judgment to understand what the market really wants. I spent several years, like this is not an overnight process. I spent several years creating a ton of content, writing a ton of articles and just putting things out there in a variety of areas. And it was only through seeing what took off that helped me hone my direction. Now, of course, I became more interested in a topic once I saw that people wanted yeah. to hear more about it. You yeah. know, so it, so it wasn't inauthentic. It was something I was interested in, but that got accelerated by the fact that I'm like, oh, people like this. Oh, okay, cool. Let's do more of it. So for me, it really was the case of like writing this HBR article about professional reinvention, seeing that that was a thing, and then saying like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride this train. Yeah, and that led downstream to a lot of different opportunities. How has it been for you? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, it's uh, similar, you know, for my story, it's it, the the theme, what's been consistent, I realized was I've always been a storyteller um, in one form or another. They've just been pretty dramatically different forms. So I, I tend to, to, f- to fall back on that, but I also have a huge improv background and improvisation is highly shapeful, shaping me into how I work. So I, the combination of kind of story and improv uh, is probably what I'm most known for. Uh, I did do a TEDx talk like nine years ago on being a failure. 
uh, which was well received. So for like yeah. three for three years, I did keynotes on being a failure until my my ego just couldn't take it anymore. I'm like, I, I, I don't want to be known as the failure forever. Um, so you know, but those things. Um, but also, what you're saying, because I've also I'm entrepreneur, entrepreneur as well, so I've been able to, to lead companies where it's not all just about me. So I think, and maybe you can talk to this some as well. There are lots of folks like me that. You know, I've had opportunities through my life where I probably could have been a solo entrepreneur and just really focused on speaking or writing or something like that. But I always enjoy the idea of building a company with people around me and having people smarter than me in the room and all that. So for me, there is sort of always a little bit of attention, tent, a little bit of tension in that my personal brand helps my business, but sometimes Sometimes they work hand in glove and other times it's kind of a little confusing, you know, which, which one gets uh, the attention. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. Uh, thanks for you're your turning the chairs on me asking me questions. I do appreciate that. Um, oh, wanna, uh, inquiring minds want to know, man. That's right. Thank you. It's great, um, it's great to hear your perspective. Thank you. Um, let's get to the long game because I think it relates to all this. But when so, um, so that is the book that sort of took off. So in your mind, uh, I mean, the simple question is why, why do you think it, it, it caught on maybe a little quicker than the others? What, what is it about it? So I would attribute it to three factors. Um, the first one, and perhaps the simplest one to replicate is actually some advice that I got, uh, from a, a colleague named Rory Vaden. And he just said something that makes sense, obviously, but I had never heard it formulated this way before. And it just really resonated with me, which is that he said, when you are titling a book, what you need to do is make sure that you come up with a title such that when people hear the title, they say, I want that. <laughs> and I think a lot of us fail to do that, you know, just at a, at a really basic level, um, something that I think is wrong, quote unquote, with my book Stand Out, which I think is actually a really excellent book. Yeah. Um, but the, the truth is, a lot of people feel highly ambivalent about the idea of even standing out. Why would you want to buy a book for a thing that you don't even know if you want to do? Yeah. Because people have like self-esteem issues yeah. or whatever. <laughs> it's like, oh, I probably should have done that differently in retrospect. And in fact, um, later this year, the book is coming out again in the UK. There's a UK issue, uh, reissue of the book under a different title called Unapologetically You, uh, which mm. I think will probably be better. Yeah. Um, but the long game, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world, I think is a very appealing title because people are like, oh, yes, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. How can I do that? So you know, having a thing where people say, I want that is very powerful. That's number one. And then number number two and three kind of tie together. Um, the number two, I'll just say actually is a function of having done the previous books in that if your goal is to hit a bestseller list, which means you have to sell a ton of copies, you know, thousands and thousands of copies all at once in the first week, you need to have a really big list. You need to have a big following of people. And that is something that if you're, you know, kind of parachuting in from some other field, like if you're already a celebrity or something like that, you yeah. probably can do it. But if you are a quote unquote regular person, you kind of need a, a lot of time to build that up. Yeah. So it, it's a lot easier on the fourth one than the first one because people have joined your mailing list. They've, you know, subscribed to your, uh, you know, your YouTube channel or whatever it is. So more people know about you and you can reach them. So that's just a function of time. 
And the third is that this book, unlike my previous book, Entrepreneurial You, which was aimed more at individuals, um, this book, The Long Game, had, uh, you know, just to use the the marketing techno, you know, terminology, uh, it had both B2B and B2C appeal. So meaning businesses liked it, you know, B2B is business to business and individuals liked it, B2C being consumer. And so you just have a bigger market for it. A a regular person who's like a subscriber to your new newsletter might say, oh, that's cool. I'll buy it. But it was also equally uh, possible that someone who runs a company would say, oh, well, I'm going to buy this for 10 of my team members or I'm going to buy this for, uh, you know, 300 of our employees. And when you're able to drive sales in that way, it's a lot easier to rack up sales. So those are sort of the three things that I would say are probably the core reasons why the long game has been especially successful. I'm glad you've really thought it through. Someone's asked you that before, I feel like. You, you, can, you, can, <laughs> you know, I mean, not specifically, but I do yeah. think about these. I come from a marketing background, so I, I think yeah, about these things all right. the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, unbelievably, we're almost out of time, which makes me sad. So we'll have you back on or uh, maybe we can find a way to hang out some other way sometime. Uh, you have such an infectious spirit and you're very fun to talk to. So thank you so much. Uh, before we leave, I got to ask, uh, what's going on with the musical? Tell me about this. What can you what can you tell me? What's What's it about? Oh, absolutely. Well, in in fact, um, in the long game, one of the stories that I tell, because it is sort of an exemplification of this, you know, there's there's the sort of famous saying that we overestimate what we can accomplish in a day, but we underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. Mm-hmm. And my contention is that that is, that is exponentially true if we think, okay, what can I accomplish in 10 years? Yeah. So in 2016, I created a 10-year goal for myself that I would write a musical that made it to Broadway. And the tricky part of this is I had never written a musical before (laughs) and I did not know how to write a musical, but I figured, you know what? 10 years, I can do that. So I'm now seven years in. So I'm actually literally just kind of living, living the experience in real time for people to see Mm -hmm. uh, as kind of a test case. So I write about it in the long game. And as the most recent update, seven years in, uh, my musical is now complete. I mean, you know, you always tweak a little bit, but it is essentially a complete musical. And uh, just a few days ago, we had uh, a couple of Actors' Equity staged readings with professional actors uh, that was presented by an off-Broadway theater in New York. So we are moving it forward. It's a uh, it's a lesbian spy musical, and I'm very excited about it. <laughs> I mean, can you save me two seats for opening night? I'll I'll fly to I New mean, York. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I I want you there. Perfect. I'm in. Uh, that sounds fun. I can't, I can't wait to see it. I'll see you at the Tony Awards in 12 years then. So that'll be great. Um, you know, shoot high. Um, thanks so much. It was, it was such an honor uh, to meet you. And we look forward to having you around on our platform more. If you'll be back, that would be awesome. I would love to be back. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. In today's ultra-competitive job market, Top-tier talent are leaving companies in search of top-tier professional development. Now more than ever, you must invest in your emerging leaders. LeaderCast 365 is a world-class professional development system featuring access to three annual LeaderCast events, a post-event journey to activate the inspiration and insights gained from LeaderCast events, plug-and-play lunch-and-learn programs with group discussion questions, concise video courses to address weaknesses and build upon strengths, 
and our library of more than 1,200 short-form videos from a slate of industry experts organized into 16 key professional development categories. Invest in your all-star employees and attract new top talent to join them with LeaderCast 365.